Welcome to My Life Chassidah Supplies, episode 361. This program is dedicated in honor of Tzvi Daniel ben Yehudit and Ita bat Miriam and all our brothers and sisters in Surfside. We are in the first week of what is called the Bein Hamtzarim, the Dire Straits, the three-week period from 17th of Tammuz to the 9th of Av. It's the saddest period in the Jewish calendar, reflecting the different negative events and tragedies that occurred during this time. As the Mishnah and Tainus enumerates the five terrible events that happened on the 17th of Tammuz, that's one bookend of the three weeks, and the other bookend on the ninth above five tragic events as well. And we remember it every year because these are not just events of the past. As we've discussed many times, time in Judaism is like a spiral, not like a river of time just flowing one direction. It's a spiral. Each year we return to the same so-called energy of that same moment, of course, in a different plane. So these events reoccur, not necessarily the tragedy of the event per se, but that negative energy that was there, the dissonance that took place when the Holy Temple was destroyed and all the steps that led to that, where the presence of the divine was united with this world, basically spirit and matter were seamlessly connected Existence, the material part of the world, was aligned with its purpose. And the destruction of the temple and all associated with it represents a dissonance, a disconnect. On a personal psychological level, that means a disconnect from who you are, who I am, and my purpose. Which is why we live in a world that we can easily wander off, go off the reservation, so to speak, where the reason we were created, we don't necessarily live up to and where we can be wandering and searching what is my purpose in life, to the point we may even say to ourselves we don't even have a purpose. All that is a manifestation of the dissonance that happened in the language of Kabbalah and the Tzimtzum, the divine concealment, with the purpose being that we should align and realign. And all that followed, including the destruction of the Temple and the other negative events, that all represents some form of spiritual, psychological, emotional dissonance. To put it in simple English, every form of fear and insecurity and inhibition where we feel psychologically blocked and unable to move forward and unable to commit or unable to discover why, why, the purpose of one, my life, unable to find a healthy relationship. These are all blocks. These blocks represent exactly what this three-week period is about. And that's why it's called Benam Tzorim, between the dire straits, between the constraints. Similar to the word Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim means boundaries. Anything that keeps us feels trapped is representative of this period in time. But the purpose of it all is not to remain there. The purpose of it all is that, in, sense, in a sense, pressure should bring out the best of us, the best in each one of us, the strengths, the creativity, to break out and reach greater heights than we could never have reached were we not pressured in that fashion. So any tragedy, whether what happened in Surfside now that we are all praying for, 
what happened in the last months, the pressures that we're all dealing with in the last close to year and a half or over to a year and a half, two years, and everyone in our personal or collective way. So this period in time has a tremendous lesson for us. First of all, it reflects and teaches us that there's, there's a, such an energy in existence, the energy of constraints. And at the same time also teaches us that the purpose of it is transformation, growth, unprecedented growth. And that's why we're told that these days will be transformed, not just eliminated, transformed into holidays, into celebration. These days will be trans- transformed into days of jubilation and celebration. So, beginning with the question, someone asked, how can we still hold on to hope 10 days since the Surfside collapsed? Yes, it's 10 days. Precisely for this reason. Because despite the fact that we're challenged, and sometimes things seem hopeless, and according to statistics or predictions, it may not seem like there's anything to look forward to, but that's not the way of the truth of existence. As, as even when there's a black hole and you don't see any light escaping, there's very powerful light there. The only thing is it's being controlled and the gravitational pull doesn't allow it to escape. And the same thing the Hasidic masters and Kabbalah teaches us, that there's always a spark, a spark of life, a spark of hope. So no matter what the situation is, we hold on because we don't go by numbers and we don't just go by predictions. If we went by that, especially the Jewish people, we would have long been gone. We still hold on while also recognizing that there are challenges involved. And no matter what, we will find the greater strength in this process. The prayer and the hope is, of course, is that miraculously people who are what they call unaccounted for will be found. But no matter how this turns out, and I'm not saying that to qualify, I'm just saying that if you look at the whole picture, there's always light. Sometimes it's easier to see, sometimes it's harder to see. So yes, it requires a superhuman effort to go beyond logic and beyond reason and beyond scientific statistics and probabilities and to hold on to something that everyone who's ever been in love, anyone who loves their children, anyone who loves their spouse, anyone who really been committed to anything in a full fashion knows what, what it means, unwavering commitment. So there's an unwavering holding on to that hope. And the nine days, which is coming next week, but the three weeks where we are now, all indicate and drive to that point. Not just to hold on to, but make sure that when we discover it, it transforms our lives. It's not just enough to go back to square one. Transformation. So another person asks, what should I do with my angry feelings toward God for allowing such tragedy? Okay. And here's a specific question. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Is it a Kiddush Hashem that the New York Times front page had a large photo of a group of Jewish women saying Tehillim outside the collapsed building in Miami? Or is it a Chil Hashem that no matter how much we pray, Hashem doesn't listen and keeps collapsing buildings on our communities, collapsing bleachers during festival events, collapsing walls onto people when, while they were davening in Miran. Not exactly walls there, it was the bridge or that passageway. In other words, Hashem's behavior is Achille Hashem and Achille Klal Yisrael. No. 
Just so, so you should know and not have to waste time trying to interpret the purpose of my anonymous note, I, read out of, I write it out of Avis Yisrael. I'm tired of seeing so many tragedies happen to our community. And if Hashem doesn't stop, I will build a large tower and climb it and shoot arrows at him until he stops. Lucas, Lucas. This is my final warning to God. I'm reading exactly how this person is writing, even though I have my issues with it, but I'm reading it uncensored. Open the treasure chest of Chesed, God, and rain blessings for safety, security, good health, and an abundance of Parnosa onto every Jew individually and collectively, or else you will feel my wrath. Signed, a Jewish descendant of Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his son for you. I'm willing to sacrifice you for my son. Everyone get ready for a year of unbridled blessings in a revealed manner in our physical world from the highest level of revelation of godliness. Amen. Generally, I would not read such a letter, too irreverent for my taste, but I know where this is coming from, and I did want to allow expression for people because I'd rather hear the expression of anger and this type of speaking than not. Lucas Lucas is a reference to a... uh, story in the Gemara in the end of Masech Sukkah, where Miriam Basbilga, who had forsaken her Judaism and had left and was, was in a relationship with the, the, one of the Roman uh, princes, that when she saw the desecration of the temple, she said, Lucas, Lucas, referring to the Mizbeach, to the altar, altar. I mean, how could God you allow such a thing, such an embarrassment, such a defilement? So even though she was in such a distant place, she still recognized the Chil Hashem, the desecration. The Rebbe has a very powerful talk that he delivered about this on Avav Tishrei in the, in, the, in the 70s. So I understand the tone and the language, and sometimes you can have such feelings. But at the end of the day, God is God, and we are not God. We don't know God's mysterious ways. We have the full right to challenge God and even to demand that you promised us that Mashiach will come and you promised us that goodness will always prevail. So why are you allowing these things to happen? You have, well, we have all the right to do that, but the end result is not about taking it out on God because we need God now more than ever is asking God to open up new doors as this fellow concludes, or maybe a woman for all I know. Bottom line is that there is a kichil Hashem, and we say to God, don't do it for us, do it for yourself. Why should... Why should the goyim, the non-Jews, say, where is your God in all of this? So we have that complaint, but at the end of the day, the result has to be demanding from God, opening up new blessings, new miracles, new channels. But we have to do our part. It's not just enough to complain. We have to do our part. And that's how we address such a topic. What to do with your anger? Channel your anger toward good deeds. Become a better person. Do something kind. Yes, say more to Hillam. Do something beautiful and kind on behalf and honor of the people who are in Surfside, those that have not been accounted for yet. There's plenty that we can and should do. Okay. Some more questions around this topic and that I've received last week after speaking about it in the la- in last Sunday and in other programs that I've done, including the biggest question, what should we be doing today about events around us? But let me read it more in detail. 
Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I would like to talk to you to, with you today about the tragedy in Surfside, Florida, starting with the tragedies in Miran and on Erev Shavuos and Karlan, Stalin, Rachman Litzlan. On your show today, referring to last Sunday's program, you discussed that we should improve ourselves in light of tragedy. God forbid. May no Jew know from it, meaning the tragedy. As the Rambam says in Hilchas Tainius, yes, the beginning of the laws of fasting, that we have to be introspective and not take this lightly and not dismiss it as something that's just happened, an accident. As far as I remember, of what I've heard, the Rebbe always responded to things of this nature with an increase in Torah and mitzvahs. And it was particular in which mitzvah or hidden mitzvah to increase in. For example, it was mitzvah mezuzah or to check the film and mezuzahs. So what I would like to suggest here is as follows. Since we're not a Rebbe, so we don't know exactly what to do at this time, however, I think we have to put our heads together and come up with a practical idea, tactical ideas, not just generalizations, and hopefully with Hashem's help, we'll come up with the right ideas. I would like to share with you some ideas I thought it might be a remedy for the situation. Firstly, I was thinking there should be a sturm in Mifza Mezuzah, as the mezuzah has the quality of watching over our homes, protection. Secondly, the Rebbe's directions that every, directives that everyone should check their film and mezuzahs every 12 months should be publicized. Thirdly, I want to discuss with you about the Takana directive of the Friedrich Rebbe to say the daily portion of Tehillim as, divide, as, as, as it's divided by the month. If I remember correctly, reading the Friedrich Rebbe's letters about this Takana, he didn't, this Takana meaning his this um, suggestion or this uh, directive, he didn't intend it just for Lubavitch, rather he wanted all of Klal Yisrael, all the Jewish people, to embrace this directive. Perhaps it's time to publicize this directive of the previous Rebbe to the wider public. I'm not sure if it's practical to ask all Kehillahs, all communities, to say Tehillim every morning after Shachas with a minion, but whatever they're capable of doing. However, an advertising campaign can be made asking the Jewish community to join in a campaign, let's say it'll be called Project Tehillim, which consists of saying five chapters of Tilim a day, and will take about 15 minutes to say for the protection of the Jewish community, Klal Yisrael. I'm sure a lot of people will respond. As part of the campaign, we'll, we'll, be also, we'll be also to share with the community the great benefits of reciting Tehillim Psalms from Chazal to stories of the Baal Shem Tev. I hope you can share this with your audience. There should be only Psurus Tevis from Klal Yisrael from now on, Mashiach now. So I actually did share it. I thought it was a very productive, these are very productive suggestions. And instead of saying, okay, there are other suggestions which I'm sure everyone can come up with, but these are excellent ones. And everyone hopefully will embrace them as they see fit. Okay. Going back to what should we be doing. So some more, another letter I'd like to read. I'm just telling you that I've received so many comments, obviously, on this topic. Some people's minds, Surfside, and in general, the whole climate of uncertainty and unknowns and upheavals and disruptions. So uh, I'm reading a selection, which I think represents the cross-section of most of the, the letters I've received. So here's a good opportunity. If you'd like to comment or ask something or suggest anything, please just go to chassidahsupply.com. There's a forum there completely anonymous, that you can submit anything you'd like to. And you see, I try to address everything almost in an uncensored way, unless it's offensive or completely inappropriate. 
Um, but uh, this is what we've been doing now. We're already 361 episodes. So you can also find all the archives of previous episodes there. So one more, or two more actually. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. In regards to your Hasidus applied talk on the night of 17th of Tammuz, again last Sunday, episode 360, you discussed the recent events that have occurred to the Jewish people. And then you gave suggestions as to what needs to be done in the spiritual realm to improve matters. Yes, to rebuild our structures, Avis and Achdus Yisrael. Now we've heard some other suggestions. Please tell me that I'm wrong, but I found it very difficult to listen to, listen to that particular speech. How many rabbis are discussing the fact that we need to, we need empathy and the things and about the things we need to do? I'm not, God forbid, saying that we should not have those things and, these, and that those people are not correct. However, what I would like to say is that it is it not true that the Rebbe has told us that we what we need to do? Tut alts, he said. The Rebbe gave it over to us. Yes, what that means has been a subject of a lot of discussion. But what cannot be argued with is that we all need to do all we can. In my humble opinion, that means that we all need to walk, in, walk inside ourselves and choose what we need to work on and work on it. No offense at all, but all I hear is talking heads. This rabbi says this, this rabbi says that. I'm overwhelmed with advice. I can barely watch all the shouting and all the rabbis giving all the classes, beginning to sound like mumbo jumbo to me. Now, now we don't exactly... Now, we don't know exactly what happened in Florida, but we do know that certain other tragedies did have some advance warning to them, and, the peop- and we people did not do all we can to prevent that. So are we doing all we can do? I think we should be telling people to do all they can do, whatever they do, whatever their job may be. They have to, they have to do that with the concentration and dedication that is required. We need to get our heads in the game and take life seriously. Know that is really up to us. Nobody else is going to do the job for us. If we don't do it, it won't get done. So instead of encouraging one million different ideas, in my opinion, we have to tell people to look inside themselves and do what they need to do. Every person has a specific mission in this world that needs to be fulfilled properly and to the maximum of their ability. Mashiach now. Well, uh, with all respect, appreciate your words. I can't speak for other rabbis, but I'll speak for myself. Yes, absolutely everybody has to look inside themselves. That's exactly the words of the Rambam, which, which you neglected to mention is what I cited most importantly, that when a catastrophe happens, we have to look inside ourselves and see what we need to correct. At the same time, people are always asking for direction, for suggestions. Now, if you have things that you feel you should do, by all means, go ahead and do it. If you have a suggestion to someone, I would not withhold it. The fact that different rabbis give suggestions, I don't see any problem with that. People are adults. Let them listen. Let them see what resonates. Let them see what makes most sense. Things that are aligned with what the Rebbe suggested. So I'm not sure whether you're venting or what, what exactly is going on here, but this is what we're all part of this. Each of us has to look inside ourselves, and there's nothing wrong with suggesting one to another. I'd be happy to hear your suggestions, and I would, be, I would read them as I just read someone else's. And that actually strengthens us all because different people respond to different ideas and that's perfectly fine. That's exactly what we should be doing. Sometimes when you just say tut alts, which is the Rebbe's words, and you don't specify it, I'm talking about for and the Rebbe gave us that instruction, then people say, what should I do? So we need both. We need to have that general inspiration or that general isaitus and awakening 
and the specifics. Okay. I had a few other comments. I don't really want to read them because they have the, there's an axe to grind, but I also don't want to ignore them. So I'll just sum it up in my own words. A few people wrote and tried to blame that what's going on based on certain things that people are doing, whether they're pursuing those that are avoiding giving a get to their wives or pursuing others who did things that may be criminal. So when I hear such letters, to me they really have an agenda. In other words, they're trying to say, this happened because you're pursuing me for doing something wrong. If a person has done something wrong, that has to be established, obviously, in a bezdin in a proper way. But if so, to say that not allowing people who are refusing to give a get to their wives in a shul or in some other way challenging them is, is the cause for this is it's not just obnoxious, besides the fact that the, the, the criminal act has been done by not giving a wife a get when a business says you should, but to also start saying that persecuting this person is the cause for, for what's happening. I mean, shame on you if that's what you're doing. And I've received a few letters like that. Again, I don't want to read them because I don't want to give that type of platform, but I want to say very clearly, if we all have to look inside ourselves. If you want to do something about this situation, don't look at others who may be criticizing you. If you have something that needs to be criticized, so do something about it, correct it. If you're a person who's refusing to give a get, like in this one case, that one letter that I received, so go ahead and give a get and find a way, go to Abezin, do it the right way, that's how we correct things. We don't blame the people who are trying to get you to do something right. I mean, that's like, come on. But people can be blinded and clearly be completely subjective. So um, the same is with the other letters I've received where people are saying, because someone did this to me, that's why it happened. Look into your heart. I'm not saying what that person did is correct. That needs to be established. And even if, if, even if they, you did something wrong, not everybody can go and do the, everything they want. The two wrongs don't make a right. But the key thing is to stop using events like this to, create, to justify one's position. It's enough is enough. You know, people have to wake up Look, we are all subjective. We may be blinded, and you may be doing something wrong. Go ahead and fix it. That's, I hope that suffices. Okay. As we said in the beginning, I said in the beginning, we're now in the three weeks. And it's also the week of Pasha Matis Masse, which is the last Pashas in the book of, the, of Bamidbar. Matis, and combined with Masse, Masse is the conclusion of the 42 journeys that the Jewish people took till they came to the east bank of the River Jordan. The next Sefer Dvarim, which begins next week, which is always the Shabbos, actually, before Tisha B'Av Dvarim, Shabbos Chazain, is Moshe repeating the events, called Mishnah Teirah. But technically speaking, the last 37 days of his life. But technically speaking, it all takes place, those 37 days that the entire Sefer Dvarim, until Moshe's passing, is on the east bank of the River Jordan. So the end of the journey. It's interesting that that happens right in the beginning of the three weeks, teaching us that the very three weeks is part of a journey. Yes, at that time it was destruction and the other negative events, but that's not the end of the story. The destruction of the Beis Amigdash, Seisal Manas Livles, is really meant to raise a building, R-A-Z-E, 
in order to build a far greater building, the Bitz Amigdash Ashlishi, the third temple. And this time we Migdash Adnei Kenu Yodecha, and it'll be a bias Nitzchi, it'll be eternal, with the coming of Mashiach and the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. So that's one basic lesson when we read the Parshas Maaseh. What other lessons does this time period have for us? Why is it called Benam Tzarim? So that I answered earlier. But I will also read one more specific question regarding the connection between this first Haftarah that we read yesterday, the first of the three weeks, talks about the, the Novi, Jeremiah, Yermio, t- talks about comparing this period, he says, to Shkedim, to almonds. The expression in the, in the Haftarah is that we read that we read yesterday is Makal Shokadaniroya. Yermio says, I see, my vision is prophecy. I see a, a stalk of almonds, basically a, rod, a, a branch of almond, an almond branch. And the Medrash and the Yerushalmi says, why, a, why a, an, an almond branch? So it says, because it takes an almond to blossom 21 days. It's the quickest fruit that blossoms. It takes 21 days, and the, which corresponds to the 21 days of the three weeks between Shavos and Batamus and Tishabov. That's what the Yerushami and the Medrash say in Echerab. Question is, what's the connection? So what's the connection between almonds that can grow and ripen in 21 days and the three weeks, and the three weeks of mourning over the destruction of the Beis Amigdash? Is, the, is there also a connection to a story a few parshas ago when Aaron's rod turns into almonds? a sign that God shows Aaron in the story with Kairach. If there is a connection, does it mean we should go out of our way to eat almonds during the three weeks, except not on Tisha of the fast day, of course? Okay. So there's a very interesting sikh actually, from the Rebbe on this very topic. It's printed in Lukute Sikhs, volume 33, in the in Beinam Tzorim. And he asked the question, what's the real connection? Is it just 21-21? The almonds grow in 21 days and it happens to be 21 days. The Rebbe says, and he brings a ragged shover. Based on the Mishnah, there are two types of almonds. There are almonds that are sweet and there are almonds that are bitter. And the Mishnah says, ragged shover explains, that the almonds that are bitter begin to be, begin first sweet and as they mature, they become bitter. Then there are almonds that are bitter in the beginning and they become sweet. And that's what the almonds we're talking about here. The ones that blossom in 21 days. That's what he says. And that's the connection, explains the Rebbe, very obvious. These three weeks, these 21 days are about bitterness, about everything that happened, bitter ways, the destruction of the temple and all that came together with it in this, this, in this three-week period. And the whole purpose is to transform the grief into joy, the bitterness into sweet, which is exactly what almonds do. The Rebbe goes even further, so why doesn't it say that he saw the vision of an almond? or almonds, why does it say he saw a, a stalk, a, a branch of almonds? So he explains, because a mata, a branch, like this week's Pasha Matis, connecting it also with the Pasha, the first Pasha of this two-week, two, two uh, Pashas that come together, the mata and shevet, there's two names for a tribe. You can call a tribe a shvatim, a shevet, or you call them mata, elamatis. The name shevet and mata both refer to a stick. Shevet is considered to be a twig or a stick that's still moist because it's still connected or was just cut off from a tree. A mata is a hard cane, 
when you work, when you walk, a walking cane or a, a hard stick, it's been cut off from the tree for a while and it's hardened. So on one hand, Shevet represents the way Neshamas and the Shvatim, the souls, are connected to their source. So it has that Lachluchi is the moisture. But a Mata represents the way they're cut off from their source, or the source is disconnected, Golos. But, the, but on the other hand, what happens is, in Golos, because we have to dig deeper and become more resilient, it hardens the Mata to be able to deal with any challenge. So that's why the three weeks represent both the bitter almonds that turn sweet, but also in the form of a stick, a mata, not just a shave it, a mata, because it hardens and becomes much stronger due to the 21 days of negative, bitter days, turns it into far sweeter and far stronger type of experience. That's in the summation of what the Rebbe says in that sicha. The lesson to us is very consistent with what we said earlier, about how to use these days to become stronger people, to become dig deeper and become more powerful. The Rebbe's directives, of course, in the three weeks, learning Hilchas Beis Abchira, the laws about the Beis Amigdash and the Rambam, in Mesech Midas, that's in the Gemara, in the Mishnah, and in uh, the Pesukim in Yecheskel, that talk about the third Beis Amigdash. Increasing in Titsim B'Mishpah Tepada V'Shavel B'Zdok, in the learning of Torah, especially Halacha and Charity, Increasing in Avis Yisrael, in love, which counteracts the baseless hate, Sinas Chinum, that was the cause of the destruction of the Second Temple. Increasing in every act of kindness and generosity. And especially when we're dealing with tragedies like Surfside. And all that counters the forces by making us harder, like Amata, as well as also transforming the bitterness into sweetness. And all done quickly, because that's what the 21 days represents, quick. It's the quickest blossoming. That should all happen, with the least resistance and the quickest possible way, all the necessary miracles, and most importantly, the quickest possible way, the Geula Mitis Vashlema. Okay. A few other questions about this week's Pasha. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, this week's Pasha speaks at length about vows in Pasha Matis, and specifically women who cannot annul their own vows, but rather rely on men to annul their vows for them, be they husbands, fathers, or sages. Why does God think that women cannot annul their own vows? Can women not think for themselves? It's not as if men are more trustworthy than women, especially during current times. Can you please shed some light on this question as it is difficult to read this Pasha? Thank you. Okay, it's a very good question. Let me broaden the question. At the, after the Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, and then they were respectively punished, the, the serpent was punished and Adam was punished, that from now on, instead of your food being given to you, you're going to have to earn it with the sweat of your brow. And Chava was punished, that the birth pangs, the birth pains of giving birth as well as Vuhu Yimshelbach, that he, the man, your husband, will have the power to dominate over you. We see that that's not a positive, that's a negative. It comes as a punishment. The question is why? Why such a punishment? Okay, you can say the birth pains is connected to her directly. She didn't do what God wanted. So life doesn't come easily. A new birthing won't come easily. 
Adam didn't do what God wanted, so now you're not going to have the easy path of just being able to serve and learn Torah and do mitzvahs. You have to now work hard to earn your living. But what does it have to do? Why, why should she be subject to him? What did, what, what did she, why is she in that situation? And, you, and so the answer, one of the main answers to this is that the punishments in Torah are not punishments. It's cause and effect. Sibum is It's a cause and effect. It's not that God just a random punishment. The punishment is the effect. It's like when you put your hand in fire, your hand gets burned. It's not a punishment. That's cause and effect. Before Eitzadas, Adam and Chava were aligned with their purpose, as I alluded to earlier. They were aligned. Everything was seamless. And that's why their sexuality, they were not embarrassed of, like a newborn child. Why should they be? It's part of the healthy human being. But then the Eitzadas, without going into elaborate detail, created self-consciousness. Das. Awareness. So awareness has a quality, but it also has that you become self-aware. So there's a self now that's disconnected from your purpose to some extent. So Eitzadas wasn't just they defied God. They changed reality of human consciousness at a consciousness that now is separate from the divine consciousness. And that's why God says to Adam, Ayeko, where are you? Well, he didn't know where he was. As the Alter Rebbe said to the minister in prison, Ayeko, where are you? I don't recognize you. Are you living up to the purpose for which you were created? Adam had wandered from that purpose, had betrayed himself, betrayed God. When all that purpose is, is living seamlessly, Adam and Chava are two halves of one whole, both created an androgynous creature, Zohar Nekeva Bara Esam. God then split them into two in order for them to reconnect and reunite with their complete, being complete and complete in the Tzalem Elikim, the divine image in which they were created. Each has their particular role. Man is mashpia, woman is a makabal. Makabal doesn't mean she's passive and a recipient. It means a different type of energy, two types of energy. One an intimate energy, one an aggressive energy, if you wish. But once Eitzadas happened, once the tree of knowledge, the, the sin of the tree happened, we now live in a world where spirituality is far harder to access because of this dissonance that was created. A woman represents the intimacy of spirituality. And that's why in this world, often a woman will suffer more because she's the weaker of the two genders. She can be taken advantage of more. Physically, I'm talking about. The whole purpose of a man's strength is to protect, to serve and protect the world, including that spiritual energy that a woman encompasses. But once Eitzadas happened, now began a world where all the vulnerable can be hurt. Men too. They also have a spirituality. But a woman specifically. The Hu Yimshelbach was both a, 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 a curse and a blessing. The curse of it is that right now, till Mashiach comes, there needs to be a protection. A man who's supposed to be a healthy man is supposed to protect his wife and his children. Not that they don't have their own strengths, but simply on a physical level. That's the positive side. The negative side is, because people have free will, you can have a situation where men can hurt women. I'm not saying women can't hurt men either. But we're talking about this context. 
So Chassidus explains that Malchus, which is the feminine, is the more powerful one because it's rooted in a higher level, but it's also the more vulnerable one. Like the moon. Pagam Halavana. The moon can be wounded, which actually represents the nine days, which is nine, not ten. Malchus has been wounded. Pagam Halavana. The sun represents more the man, a consistent energy. As I said, aggressive more. So when it comes to a neder, a neder is a person takes upon a vow, takes a vow, takes upon themselves, which actually should never be happening. The Gemara says, It's enough with the Torah for you. You don't have to take a new vow. But if for whatever reason a person takes a vow because of their own weakness or they feel they need to strengthen something, so the truth is, it's a mitzvah to actually annul the vow. But since a vow comes from that additional need to protect, so therefore the annulment of the vow comes through the male. Just like other things that a man so-called protects the woman. Not that a woman cannot annul her own vow, technically speaking. We're talking about a vow that represents, as I said, adding something that one should not have. The truth is a woman shouldn't have vows in the first place. If there is already a vow... The way to annul it is through a tailor's power given to a bezdin or to, like you said, a sage or to the husband or a father to annul the vow. Essentially, it's actually indicating that a woman is more is higher than vows and really should, should be avoiding them in the first place. But if it's there already, it's like, who's going to eliminate it? If there's something that in the house, let's say, there's some type of damage in the house, God forbid, Who's, who's the stronger one that can fix that damage? It's going to be the man. The woman doesn't have to get down to the mud, to the dirt, to go fix things. That's what a man's job is. So that's essentially the short, the short or the not-so-short explanation of this topic. Okay. The lesson is that when, as we, now at the end of the days before Mashiach, it says, Nekevet to save of Gover. Then now the power, the feminine power of the intimate divine energy, the Ur, which is the intimate energy of the divine, not the energy that's expressive, will be revealed, and then the opposite will be the case. The feminine energy will be more powerful than the, ma- the masculine energy. And again, we're not talking about man and woman. Remember, it's archetypes. The masculine energy, the feminine energy. Both men and women have both those energies. And ultimately, when Mashiach comes, the makabal, the moon, will be greatest of all. Because when you don't have the predators and the hostile world around, then that energy will be the most powerful of all. In a world before that, that energy needs to be protected because it's fragile and it's sensitive. And look, the Beis Amigdash, Malchus, was destroyed because the world became too materialistic, too selfish. So we need the man who represents more of that materialistic world to transform it, and then that feminine energy can rise and become the most powerful of all. And everyone will benefit from that. Another question someone asks, why weren't the tribes of Reuben and God punished and excommunicated for asking to settle in the land outside Israel? So the story goes, as they're standing, the Torah tells us, as, the, as they arrived at the east bank of the river Jordan, Reuben and God came to Moshe. They said, we want to stay here, not enter at Yisrael. Different explanations, because we have a lot of cattle, Miknerav, and we need to, uh, here the pasturing will be greater, and better, different reasons. Some said that they were more connected to the man, to the lechmen ha 
and therefore didn't want to eat livestock, which is why they had more cattle. So why weren't they punished as this person? Yes, they fought alongside the other tribes to conquer Canaan. How nice of them. But God said, I'll take you out of Egypt into Israel. They disobeyed a direct order from God. Does this mean in Mashiach's time, large groups of Jews can say, I don't want to move to Israel. I'd rather stay in Canada because I prefer snow blizzards over heat strokes? Okay. So the continuing story is that Moshe was not happy with what they said for that reason, because God wanted everybody to go on Teretz Yisrael. But then Moshe says to them two things. The problem, with you, if you don't go, it'll frighten the other Jews of going to Eretz Yisrael. And why are you better than they, the second point, or maybe the first point in the reverse order, they're going to go to war, and you're going to stay here and not have to go to war. So that's when they offered, and they said, we'll go on the front lines, Reuven and God said. It ended up also including half of Menashe. There's another discussion why they came in later. Say, many say that they were there in the beginning as well, together with Reuven and God. Bottom line is that they fought the front lines, and that's when Moshe agreed. The reason they weren't punished like the Miraglim, because the Miraglim said, we cannot enter this land. And they instigated and incited the whole people to not want to go, because they said it's a land that consumes its inhabitants. It's too powerful for us. Reuben and God never said that. On the contrary, they went to war to show, no, we're here to fight with you. Now the question why they wanted to stay there, on a spiritual level, there are many different explanations given for it. There's actually one in the Rebbe's Asikha. They wanted to stay where, with their Rebbe, Moshe Rabbeinu, who would be buried there. And until Moshe goes into Eretz so they didn't want to go. That's more of a chassidish beer. But there's other explanations as well that in a sense they extended Eretz Yisrael, already beginning to give a taste of what would be when Mashiach comes, when Eretz Yisrael will spread out also to Keni Knizi Vikadmeni. Whether that was their intention or not, there's another discussion. But it wasn't a sin quite the same way. Once they, once they satisfy Moshe's request, that means that there was no negative implications, they were allowed to stay there. That's the general explanation. Okay. How many cities of refuge were there? What stopped relatives of killed people from entering cities of refuge to take revenge? Were there armed guards? If someone accidentally killed a Kayin Godel, would they still have to go to a city of refuge? So the Rambam speaks about the cities of refuge that were here in our time to now, the different cities, and then there'll be added more cities when Mashiach comes. Look at the end in Perek Aleph of Hilchus Melachim. What stopped? Yes, there were, first of all, the law itself said that if someone went to a city of refuge, you couldn't go after him. If someone did, they could be prosecuted. These cities of refuge were also where the Levium lived, so there was definitely protection. But the main thing was, like anything, just like the person who killed someone accidentally, why did he go to a city of refuge? You could say, I'm not going, because they're laws and they were enforced. So someone pursuing them there would also be prosecuted. If someone actually killed the Kohen Gadol, would they still have to go to a city of refuge? So there's discussion about this, that I have to get back to you more in detail. But in the halachas, there are, there's a discussion if somebody would have to go to Syria of refuge. Most likely, yes. We're talking again accidentally. Because why would it be different? But there is, if I recall, in, in Svarim, there are a discussion on this topic 
that regarding different issues. But that, if you don't mind, I will uh, follow up with. In the Pasha, an angry Moshe orders his troops to kill all Midianite women that ever had any relationships with a man. So my question is, since Moshe's wife, Zepera, came from Midian, was she killed too or spared in another blatant act of nepotism? It's a little chutzpahdika way of putting the question. But first of all, we're talking about the Midianite women who were intentionally going to seduce the men and do things that were that was, uh, created a major magefa, as we learned at the end of Pasha Bolok, and how Pinchas reacted to it. Moshe marrying a Midianite woman, remember, it's before Matan Tate, he didn't do anything wrong. He married a Midianite woman. Before Matan Tate, it was completely acceptable. There's no issue about it. The fact that some people had murmured about it, that was their issue. So I'm not sure what the comparison is and why I would even suggest there's a comparison. Okay. Let's go to the next question. What can Chassidus teach us about July 4th, Independence Day, which is today? Yes, so it's Independence Day because in 1776, the United States of America declared its independence from England. So maybe the question has to be posed this way. What does Chassidus have to tell us about independence? So first of all, we know what it says in the Pesach, Loi avodaheim, you are my servants, God says, you're my servants, you're not servants to my servants, independence of all human beings. There's no human being that can subjugate another human being. We all serve God. So the concept of independence is very clearly a Torah basis. We know the founding fathers were very inspired by the biblical ideas, including independence, as a matter of fact, they called this like the new Israel. Hebrew was a suggested language of, of America. They were suggested it. There are many descriptions, especially during that time when Independence Day took place, that refer and allude to biblical references to Israel, the Jews coming out of Egypt. This was how it was seen by many of the founding fathers. Deeper than that, there was John Adams, who was one of the founding fathers, who strongly believed that, that the country and the dependence is only possible when it's based on faith and morality, not just based on enlightenment, as some of the other founding fathers disagreed. They all were people of faith, but he was very adamant about it. And he actually referred to the Jews that they did more to bring civilization to the world than any other people, and modeled many of the ideas of the United States Constitution and its principles on biblical teachings. He actually even bemoaned the fact that what will happen when prosperity begins to grow in the United States, what will it do to virtue? And this was a big, a big problem. Thomas Jefferson, his colleague, then they had a falling out, then they had a reunion, had actually main argument was over the French Revolution. Jefferson saw it as an extension of the American Revolution, and Adams saw it, no, as anarchy against God and against faith. Adams turned out to be right once they saw the tyranny that took over France. So if you compare it to the story of the Alta Rebbe, why he did not want France to win the war, he wanted Alexander of Russia to win, because he felt that France may offer better material life for the Jews, 
but their spiritual life would be compromised. Because the freedom and the independence of French version was godless. It was all about all about my human power, not about God. And that type of independence, though it has a certain blessing, but once it's godless, it can be far worse than the tyranny that was in Russia, where the material life of the Jews was very difficult, but their spiritual lives were, were more preserved. So many ways, Adams is very similar to the Alter Rebbe's approach. And indeed, that is the challenge of independence. As the Rebbe says in the Yechidus in Tov Shechav Dalad, he says that Jews went through all the challenges, challenges of oppression and affliction and, and uh, poverty. And now the great, the, is the last Nisoyen, Freiheit, independence, freedom. The Rebbe, the Rebbe said, the Abraham says, I give you freedom. Will you still want Mashiach? God forbid, the Rebbe said, that freedom is given, but, but it's being used for the opposite. That's why the Gula will come, he said, not from Morocco or Russia, where there's more suffering, but from free countries like the United States and, America, and Australia. That's the expression the Rebbe used. So the lessons from Chassidus about independence, they are many. The power of independence, but also an independence that's connected with higher purpose. Because independence without that becomes ultimately anarchy. It doesn't have a compass, a moral compass. So that's a critical lesson that we learn from that. Who should we be voting for in the New York mayoral election? Good evening, Rabbi Jacobson. With this mayoral election, which has so many consequences and the stakes are high, there are so many different opinions, but the Jewish community is encouraging. I find it difficult to vote for someone that is not following all the guidelines and principles that we would want. Are we supposed to be choosing the best of the worst? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, if these are the candidates, unless you have a better candidate, you choose the one that's going to be best for the Jewish community and best for God and best for our values and best for a city that will be crime-free and not one that would encourages um, lawlessness. So you do the best you can. I'm not in the, involved in the details. So I can't tell you who's the right one, but if the community councils and the rabbis are suggesting certain candidates, that's who we should follow. The fact that you may not like that person questions who the other candidates are. You have to always go by choices, what our alternatives are. So in context of that question, how do we approach Curtis Sliwa? Just recently a video came out of him speaking about Hasidim. A good that came out and condemned it as anti-Semitic. My question is layered. If what he says is true for the most part, is it considered anti-Semitic? I happen to find what he said to be true. Two, based on the answer to the above question, would it be appropriate to vote for him? What is our stance on voting for someone in these circumstances? I do find it perplexing that the firm community in New York City overwhelmingly will vote for Democrats, even though they disagree on almost everything the Democratic Party stands for today, except for the ability to accept social services and government assistance. How can we vote for a party that doesn't stand up against racism, anti-Israel, etc.? Okay, look, as I just said, I, am not, I don't know the details of each individual. I'm not going to start now labeling anyone anti-Semitic or not. You have to look at the facts on the ground. And this is this form in general, Chassidus applied. The reason I'm addressing it because Torah applied, Chassidus applied to every situation. But the details need to be looked at. I would say 
we have leaders in our communities and we have rabbis and we go to them and if you have a question, you can challenge them. Do they have their own agendas? Well, but their agenda could also very well be good for the community. And remember, this isn't a perfect world, so we're not suggesting perfection. I'm assuming why Democratic Party, because usually the Democrats win in this, in this city. So to go with a Republican could also be not having a, a person in power that you're going to have any relationship with. So you have to also be prudent. And again, it may be the best of the worst. And that's all that needs to be considered. I, I'm definitely not an expert in this, and I'm saying that outright. But I do think clear-headed person, there's ways to go. Just like when you need medical advice, you go to doctors. Here I would go to the community leaders who care about the community. And you can challenge them if you feel they have some bias or prejudice, by all means. And you go to more than one until you really get some clarity in this direction. I would follow more or less these guidelines. I see no reason why not to, unless you have very strong reason to find someone. And also you want to have someone who's going to win. It's not just about standing on principle. You want someone who's winner who's going to, is going to win the election. And just because someone's Republican doesn't mean they have, a, they have a carte blanche that they're for sure great. Or someone Democrat is definitely bad. You go case by case, individual by individual. Okay. Let me go to, oh, let's see what we have here. COVID vaccination. So I've spoken about vaccines number of times back in, during the height of the COVID pandemic and other times as well, before that as well, things from the Rebbe. And it remains this, this controversy for some reason. Uh, well, the reason is obvious because there's so many different opinions and who do you trust? So I was holding back from talking about it, but I keep getting more and more letters about it and I decided, you know what, let me at least cover it to some extent. At the time when I discussed it, we have a Teda and we have a Rebbe who gave us directives. You have to figure out how to apply those directives to our time. That's the only question in my mind. You have people who say the vaccinations are necessary. Respectable, respectable doctors saying take the vaccine. And you have those, including respectable doctors, who say do not. They say it wasn't tested properly. It's not a vaccine, it's just called a vaccine. It's tampering with the, 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 with the, the genes, genetic tampering, and all the different thoughts that you have, that people have. There are conspiracy theories. And then who do you listen to? Is there a lot of money at stake? For sure, as soon as you have money at stake right there, you're going to have bias. But bias can go both directions. That's why we have a Torah and we have a Rebbe. And that is why my main advice was the following that just as you go to a doctor about every issue, go to a doctor, your trusted doctor, and ask him what he thinks. You trust him in everything else, you have to trust him here. Could he make a mistake? The trader knows a doctor can make a mistake. A doctor is a boss of a doctor. Of course he can make a mistake. So in order to qualify even that, so you go to a second doctor. And they disagree, go to a third, and they do what two out of three say. This is generally the Rebbe's approach. About vaccines, yes, if it was an untested vaccine, the Rebbe was more wary. Makes sense. A tested vaccine, the Rebbe said, even though we don't always understand every vaccine, every vaccine has risks. 
Now, what about how do we apply that to our situation? So here again, depends who you ask. There are people that are very aggressive, radical anti-vaxxers. And then there are extreme radical pro-vaxxers. And then we need to find the middle approach. I can't say what you should do, because all I can say is what I think the criteria are. These persons should go to their legitimate doctors and ask this. I don't think we, not I don't think, I know, the Rebbe said it many times, we cannot become doctors overnight. If the vaccine needs testing, your being becoming a doctor also needs testing. And that takes years. Now, people can do research, but I know, we all know, research is, goes that far. That doesn't turn you into a doctor. Would you trust someone that does research and they're going to do heart surgery on you? So we have to find, and we, the Torah says, Torah says that we have to listen to doctors. So that's the approach we have to take. So here, just to read one or two, and I'll try to follow up next week because a lot has come in among this topic. Dear Rabbi, I'm blessed to have a, found a lovely group of women to learn with. We study Torah, Tanya, Hebrew, Exodus together. I love these women, and, and, but I'm distressed that many of them have been swayed by anti-vaccination hype and are under the impression that the vaccine is dangerous for them and their children. I would hope they would consult their own rabbis and doctors, but they seem to be listening to other voices. Many of them follow Chabad customs, so I'm wondering if you can shed some light on a Jewish Chabad perspective re-COVID vaccines. Thank you for all you do. You're always a voice of reason. Okay. I could have read this question before my response, but I gave my response, which is directly addresses this question. Another person writes, I'd like to commend you for your honest, humble answer to the question, what can we learn about the COVID vaccine? I agree, I agree that it's a personal decision that we all have to make. As the Rebbe said, I've done all that I can and I leave it to you. Okay, I don't know if that applies to the COVID vaccine, to be honest. I've seen rabbis conduct an in-depth study of the words verapa yerapa, which means the doctor shall heal. From these words, Torah scholars learned that a doctor is given permission to heal. But just like a judge who was said to have a sword at his neck at the time of judgment, the doctor has a huge responsibility. And he must be careful not to cross the line between helping a person heal and playing God. Similarly, people who who use medical services should be careful not crossing the line of worshiping the medical system. I've heard people say things like, I believe in science, I believe in vaccines, I trust my doctor. When making your decision, you should consider that it is a politically engineered, that this is a politically engineered hysteria and a lot of people are taking an untested, possibly dangerous vaccine to quash their fears. You need to examine if your decision is based on a worship of the system. Your doctor needs to be examined that he's not crossing any fine lines. He's not immune from doing this. I personally feel that, as you said in episode 342, that we may be experiencing destruction of our old world systems, medicine, government, and media, which are riddled with lies, so that we can have a spiritual transformation. COVID has shown us that we have enough resource, resources for all to have a comfortable life without even working, and that the whole world is united in a war against an invisible enemy. All that is needed is an end to illness forever. May the redemption come immediately. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I agree in general. That's the way we should look at things. I cannot come to a conclusion and say that there's a conspiracy either way. I think there are many biases. I don't know if it's such a collective hysteria that is created and everybody's following it in one way. I understand the argument. But again, that's why instead of going and trying to solve the whole global problem, 
I look at it as an individual that we need to go to our doctors, follow the Torah, follow the Rebbe's directives. That's all that's negated. God protects people. You know, God forbid people have gone to surgery, people have listened to doctors, not during COVID, and some have died. Allergic reactions. And some people have been saved. I don't think there's an airtight solution. All we can do is follow Torah. I think a balanced approach is the key to everything. So I don't buy into conspiracy theories one way or the other. Either one way that the whole country or most of the country are all bought off to say everyone, or the other extreme, that it's all perfect and there are no risks. Obviously, COVID was done quickly. So you have to find some, some medium. Now, I'm not denying that it's possible. If someone really did research, maybe they'll find out. There was a major conspiracy, a lot of money being made. And they didn't want to allow other medicines to work because they wanted this for all the different financial and other biased reasons. It's all possible. I'm not denying it. That's why I'm not ruling on the matter. Okay. Let us now go... um, You know, let me just do two more already on this topic. In July 1986, the Rebbe had responded to someone about vaccinations, seemingly endorsing childhood routine vaccines. Later that year, in November, the manufacturing companies of vaccines lost their liability, and one was no longer able to hold their, the manufacturer responsible after any possible damage was done to their children. Later in 1992, the Rebbe was asked again about vaccines and then seemingly had a different response. Then he had said to check the reliability of the manufacturing company to see if they were safe. I don't remember the full letter. Could you please read the letter to me so I can hear it? It gives me reassurance that the Rebbe changed his opinion after learning that these companies can no longer be trusted to uphold the high standards of safety they once had. Unfortunately, many times have, many times have these businesses appeared in court with a guilty verdict for harming thousands of children. Which volume is the letter in? Thank you. I actually read the letter, and I have to find which episode it's in, and I'll look it up. Uh, I don't think the Rebbe changed his opinion. His opinion was always the same. That if it's been proven independently and tested is one thing. If it's not been proven, it's a different approach. I'm not sure the Rebbe changed it regarding any particular company. I think this was always the approach. Now, if it's proven that, that something was not demonstrated and tested properly, that we, know, we understand the Rebbe's approach. But as far as the actual letters, I would suggest going back to episode 342, where I referred to all the other episodes and where the, I read these letters. Dear Rabbi, the Catholic Church is not supporting the use of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, it's already over that. I think that's in general has been shelved. Due to the usage of embryos in the making, please tell me what your view is on, whatever this is, on whether this is acceptable. Thank you. If indeed it's using embryonic matter is one question that needs to be answered. Is that correct? Is that verified or not? If it is... That is a question that has to be asked by rabbis and doctors. Is it saving a life? And are you allowed to do that? Did you, was the embryo killed? Was someone put to death because of this? Was someone put at risk because of using this? So all this has to be looked at from a logic and, and a medical perspective. That's what I have to say. I am not, not going to rule here because, firstly, I don't have the facts. And secondly, even when I did have the facts, you have to go to an authoritative rabbi who knows how to look into it properly and know all the implications. Because it's not just about that vaccine. Can you use embryonic material for other medicines and so on? Okay. With that, let me go to the Hasidic question. 
pertaining to the concept that God is constantly recreating the world, and if he stopped for a moment, the world would revert to nothingness. Every second, existence has no legitimacy and, of, and reality of its own, so it's constantly dependent on the divine energy, constantly, every moment renewing that perpetual renewable energy. So here's the question. If God worked for six days creating the world, but on Shabbos he rested, as the Torah says, i.e. he stopped working to create the world, then how can the world exist on Shabbos and not revert to nothingness? Okay. So this question is asked. It's asked in Kabbalah and asked in Chassidus. And the answer is that, well, firstly, let's understand what means God rested. God rested not because he was tired, obviously. God elevated back to a place where not, godliness is not manifesting and investing in the process of creation, but rather going back to so-called its more godly state. Like just like you think of a, a king who goes out to the, his subjects and is involved with them for six days, and then he goes back to his palace. But, as Chassidus explains, the outer dimension of divine energy continues to continue to give sustenance to existence. So it's the panimius achayis that on Shabbos goes so-called back to its source, and then after Shabbos comes back again and is renewed. You could ask another question. If God says to keep Shabbos, how is it possible that there's rain and snow and all activities going on in the world? In a sense, God is doing malacha. So that's another question for another time. Chassidus explains that. Tere'er vayakel. Just to add to this, the question is also asked, okay, chitzenis or chitzenis. But what about Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah, we're told, same thing, Rosh Hashanah, all the chayas goes back, the divine energy to its source, and waiting to be renewed during the davening or the tekir shefer, like Al-Tarebbe says in the Geras, the Kedr Yudalit. It's like similar to Shabbos. So the answer is given, then Rosh Hashanah, the Panimius gives, the Chetzenius has been removed, but the Panimius still remains. But then comes the question, what about Yom Tov Shorosh Hashanah, Shachal Yizbashabbos? Rosh Hashanah and Shabbos, you don't have the Panimius and not the Chetzenius. So the Rebbe has a sikh in Chelik Tess, the Rosh Hashanah sikh, Hazinu, he talks about this. That at the end of the day, the Chetzenius of the Panimius, the Chetzenius of the Chetzenius remains. The Panimius of the Chetzenius remains, as he explains there at length. So bottom line is there is always a form of energy that remains with us in existence, even on Rosh Hashanah, before, before the renewal, and on Shabbos as well, and even when Rosh Hashanah comes on Shabbos. Okay. Let me do, as we've been doing, we're now in the 29th place winners of the 6th annual My Love Chassidah Supply Essay and Creative Contest. And I'll do that right now. So, the 29th place, essay in English, accept or expect? Can we do both? Mushka Feldman, 19, Shlucha Machon Alta Seminary, her hometown is Brooklyn, New York. So this is about accept or accept. We talking said we accept whatever God wants, does, and expect, we expect also from God. So using Siddhis, explaining how to reconcile those two. The essay in Hebrew for men, Hakol Tev, Yedidya, Aliasi, student in Jerusalem, Israel. 
the idea that everything, even when a negative, is also for the good, explained again with Chassidus. This is all applying Chassidus to contemporary situations. The essay in Hebrew, Women, is the war of a person with their evil inclination and how to deal with, how to deal with cope with face challenges through having a strong, positive self-confidence. Mayira Simentov, an educator in Sfas, Israel. And finally, the creative look up when down, drawing and poem. That even went down, looking up through a drawing in a beautiful poem by Rachel Rodel, or Rachel Rodel, Rodel, age 16, student, Taylor Academy Girls High School, Johannesburg, South Africa. And with that, we conclude episode 361 of My Life, Because It Is Supplied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Again, in honor of our brothers and sisters in Surfside, may God send a miracle quickly and that those that are still unaccounted for should be discovered. Have a big surah to say da for them. May the families have strength, and may we all be able to get through this and finally see how how these days are transformed, transformed to celebration and joy with the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.